The first reading is from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 9 through 12. There he, Elijah, came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading is taken from Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of the city. It shall not be moved. God will help it when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress." Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Father, in the call to worship, you have invited us into your holy presence. May we remain there with ears attentive and hearts open to your words to us this morning. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For many of us, life before the pandemic, if we can remember that far back, if it really existed at all, was busy, sometimes frenetically so. There were so many demands on us and on our time, were there not? Constant pressure from the workplace for more time, more energy, constantly and relentlessly in pursuit of the holy grail of greater productivity. 
pressure from home for more and increasingly dramatic activities for better, more lasting memories as a family, quality time. Pressure from society to pursue and acquire all the hallmarks and accoutrements of a successful life. The pressure from church to attend, to volunteer, to serve our neighbors. No wonder we never had a moment to slow down, to pray, to be still. And then, in March, most of that came to an abrupt halt. We were ordered to shelter in place. We could no longer go to work, and some of us did transition to working from home or went on CERB. Some of us still had some pressure to perform, but it wasn't quite the same. And we at least no longer had the nerve-wracking and time-consuming commute to deal with. Nothing was open. There was nowhere to go. No dinners out, no trips to the museum, the aquarium, or sporting events. There weren't even any sporting events on TV. Many of the accoutrements of a successful life also ended up in the ditch, didn't they? Unable to go to the salon... The COVID do became a thing. Well, for some of us, it did. We lived in our pajamas and our sweatpants. If we had video meetings, we'd put on a nicer shirt or top. But fashion was largely a thing of the past. I know many of us still haven't worn a pair of dress shoes since last winter. And church went virtual. No more physical church attendance, much less pressure to join each week. And if we did, we could multitask if we so wished. No need for greeters, for sides people, or Sunday school helpers. No more physical small groups, cluster meetings, service projects. We went from so many demands on our time to almost none at all in such short order. With all of those external pressures suddenly gone, did we all just naturally shift towards the smooth transition to quiet and peaceful life for which we longed, which we said we longed? Did we pray, learn to be still, sense God's presence like never before? Well, based on observation, conversation, and self-reflection, as far as I can tell, that was by no means a universal reality, maybe not even a common one. So one takeaway from the experience of the pandemic is that our frenetic state cannot be attributed entirely, perhaps not even primarily, to external pressures. There is something within us that is at least complicit with, if not the author of, our frantic ways of being. Now, I've been convinced from the very beginning of this pandemic that while I don't believe God was the author of COVID-19 as a judgment on humanity, God was saying to us very deliberately, hush, be still, be still. So when we as a pastoral staff began to discuss this brief sermon series, I embraced it with enthusiasm Perhaps we should have done this series earlier when we were all still in full lockdown. But because I believe that the biggest problem 
with our frantic way of life and just about the only thing we can, only one we can do anything with is internal. Perhaps this still affords us an opportunity to deal with some of these issues internally during the changed circumstances of the pandemic. I have thought at times that in five years' time, when we look back on, on now, we may do so with the sense of an opportunity missed or at least not fully taken advantage of. So this morning, to introduce this series, I would like us to explore two seemingly simple questions. Why does God ask us to be still? And what is it in us that often resists that call? Why does God ask us to be still? And what is it in us that resists that call? So why does God ask us to be still? Our series title and the psalm from which it is taken gives us a very straightforward answer, doesn't it? Be still and know that I am God. But how does being still help us to know that God is God? And what kind of stillness are we talking about? The Hebrew word translated still primarily means to relax or let go. Our psalm is an invitation to let go of our almost comical efforts to control the circumstances around us, to relax our white-knuckle grip on the fragile components of our life construct. There's a wonderful contrast here in our psalm between the shaken and the unshakable. In verses 2 to 5, we read, We will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Verse 6, The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. Does any of this sound eerily familiar as we watch the global news headlines? From apocalyptic feeling fires in Australia, and yes, the fires in Australia were still in 2020, to the fires that now rage in Colorado and California and elsewhere on the West Coast, to a global pandemic with 1.2 million people dead so far, to the political division, chaos, and alienation in so many places in the world around us, and closer to home. Roaring, foaming, trembling, and raging resonate deeply within us as we watch the news. The upheaval, chaos, and transience of this world and its inhabitants is contrasted with the unshakable strength and enduring stability of the city of God. Verses 4 and 5 read, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Verse 7, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. There is also a marked contrast between the active and passive in our psalm. In the face of the great natural and political upheavals of our world, about which we as a rule can do nothing, God invites us to relax, to let go, and come to an understanding of who is sovereign and who is not. Mercifully, our psalm invites us to cease our frantic striving, scheming, and manipulating as we seek to control forces and situations so much beyond our knowledge, our ability, and our strength. There is only one who is sovereign over the terrifying forces of nature, the at times chaotic madness of our political world, 
and our machines of war, and it's not us. Be still, relax, let go, and know that I am God, he says. I will be exalted. If we've been paying attention at all during the last eight months, we will have been relieved of that crushing illusion that we are in control of so much in our lives and the world around us. So part of being still is to relax. I think of John Nicholson whenever I say that. Part of being still is to relax, to relinquish control of our circumstances and let God be sovereign. But there is more. Our text from 1 Kings 19 is an excerpt from the story of the prophet Elijah. He had just had his dramatic face-off with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and he had called down fire from heaven to consume his sacrifice, something that the prophets of Baal could not replicate. It was a moment of great victory and a demonstration of the extraordinary power of God, but that victory came at great emotional and spiritual cost. And when Queen Jezebel uttered threats, Elijah fled into the desert, into the wilderness, and hid in a cave in a mountain. Apparently, defeat had been snatched from the jaws of victory. Then, we have this remarkably instructive encounter with God. There was a tornado, but God wasn't in the tornado. There was an earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. There was a fire, and despite the fact that God had been revealed to Israel as a a pillar of fire in the wilderness wanderings, God was not in the fire. Where was God? God was in the silence that followed all that chaos and noise. Our translation calls it a low whisper. It's all famous, also famously translated as a still small voice, but it could equally well be translated as a small silence. And it is in this silence that Elijah is able to express his fears and receive assurance and guidance from God. But it begins with listening, intense listening. And as far as I can tell, it is in the silence more than anywhere else that we have the opportunity to hear God speak. In 1965, it's a long time ago now, novelist James Michener published a novel titled The Source, and perhaps some of you have read it. The Source is a cleverly constructed novel based on an archaeological dig in a site set in northern Israel. The overarching narrative is that of the archaeological dig and the relationships between people on that dig. But as successive layers of the ancient city are are excavated, Michener tells stories of that particular period of habitation. So as they dig deeper, the stories go further and further back into the ancient past. The last layer of the site is the first period of habitation of that city, and the story takes us back to the time of the patriarchs. The hero of the story is a desert nomad, much like Abraham was. He was the patriarch of his extended family, and this great desert wanderer was in the habit of communing with God in the vast stillness and silence of the desert nights. At some point, God had made it clear that he he and his family were to move into the city, Obedient to the call of God, he made the necessary preparations, and on the last night before the move, he walks out into the silent stillness of the desert night 
and he asks God the question that had been troubling him. Will you go with me? He asks. The response out of the silence was both simple and profound. I will always be with you. I'll just be harder to hear. To be still, to be silent, is to venture into the place of unmediated intimacy with God. To know God's sovereignty and submit to it, as our psalm tells us, and to listen and to hear God in the silence, to receive comfort and guidance as Elijah did. That comfort and guidance certainly sound inviting, don't they? So what are the barriers to letting go and listening? Certainly the world around us knows less and less about either. The way of the world is in grasping, taking, controlling, and talking. Constantly talking. A vast heaping up of words that signify nothing but our own doubts, fears, and insecurities. And we, as participants in the world around us and as preachers, yes, I know the irony of preaching about silence, we've allowed those ways and means of behaving, relating, and communicating to have no small influence on us as well. But what are the internal aversions to stillness in the presence of God? Why have we as the church universal not embraced the forced stillness of the pandemic as fully as we might? Well, the first reason is that if we relax and let go, as our psalm tells us, if we cease from our doing and making our planning and organizing and left those matters to the sovereignty of God, they may not turn out the way we want them to. We may not like what happens when God is in control. Now, there are at least two possibilities if we have this suspicion, and they're not mutually exclusive. The first is that at some level, we're pretty sure that what we want doesn't fall in line with the will of God for our lives and world. So as we pursue our dreams and seek to manipulate our environment and other people to achieve our dreams, we're pretty sure that if we surrender to God's will, we would have to abandon those dreams. At some level, we are sure that our desires and God's desires for us are not in sync. Now that may or may not be true, it would take some deliberate prayer and some shared discernment with others to begin to know whether our desires or do coincide with God's desires for us. But regardless, there is a lifetime of growth, maturation, and transformation for all of us for our wills to become fully in tune with God's will. Yet, that is the only direction that peace, contentment, purpose, and joy lie. So I implore all of us to continue to pursue the path of conforming our wills to God's will. A second possibility is that we don't think God can be trusted with our well-being. We've been hurt in the past, and whether rightly or wrongly, we've attributed that hurt to God. God either actively brought it about or at least passively allowed it to happen. And we can no longer trust God to have our best interests at heart. Before I say more, I want to acknowledge and honor the hurt that many of us are experiencing this morning. I in no way seek to diminish it or blame you for experiencing it. I I share your pain. I have had much pain and disappointment in my own life. 
However, we in contemporary Christianity have been beset by a subtle form of error that only makes it worse. What I call the spiritual prosperity gospel. Its least subtle expression goes something like this. Give your life to Jesus and all your problems will go away. And I've heard that exact phrase. Of course, we all know that's not true, don't we? We know that all of us continue to struggle with all manner of adversities, pains, and disappointments in our lives. If anything, it seems to increase for the follower of Jesus. But if we believe at some level that God is supposed to make our dreams come true and prevent us from experiencing that great evil of pain and disappointment, and yet our experience as a believer runs counter to that, then either our faith is inadequate or God doesn't deliver as promised and can't be trusted. However, it is not that God has failed to deliver on his promises, but that we, and I speak now to leaders and teachers, have misunderstood and misrepresented those promises. We've done a soft sell of the gospel, and in so doing, have done the gospel a disservice. Certainly not a single major character in the Bible went through life free from pain and adversity. As a matter of fact, it is the extraordinary degree of pain and adversity that many of them experienced that made them noteworthy, made them heroes of the faith. From Job sitting and scratching in the ashes of his life, Abraham with the knife poised to strike at the heart of his beloved son, John the Baptist beheaded for speaking truth to power, Mary, the most blessed of all women, got to see her firstborn son die the most gruesome of deaths. And Jesus, both our Redeemer and our example, lived a life of relative poverty in constant conflict in opposition to the powers that be, finally rejected, humiliated, scorned, and crucified by those he loved and came to redeem. The fact is, God has not promised to deliver us from pain and adversity. But in Jesus, he has promised to be with us always. Always. Last week, someone asked me where God could possibly be in relation to the chaotic situation in, the, to our, neighbor, in our neighbors to the south. My response was that God was right in the middle of it, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing whenever a single solitary act of love was chosen in the face of fear, anger, and hatred, right in the middle, right in the middle where God always has been. Just like God has always been with you. Right in the middle of your pain and adversity, weeping with you when you feel like you weep alone sustaining you and carrying you along when you feel abandoned, comforting you when you feel inconsolable. He's right there. He's always been right there. But that brings us to our second set of reservations that surface in response to our story about Elijah. And there are three obvious fears that might keep us from entering into the divine silence. 
The first is that where we to stop our frenetic way of life and come away from our many distractions and diversions, to step into the silence, we would come face to face with ourselves. The stories of the earliest Christian hermits in Egypt are full of epic battles with all kinds of fantastic demons. One of the insights of modern psychology, though by no means the whole story, is that many of those demons were internal, unaddressed and unhealed wounds. Unforgiveness that still continues to bully from the unacknowledged dark corners of our being. Fears, angers, inordinate longings. Self-disappointment, even self-loathing. Our own frailty, and especially our own mortality. All barricaded away from our conscious minds with a patchwork wall of diversions and self-deceptions. But we're pretty sure they're still there, and we can't bear to face them all. No, the silence is not a safe place at all, because we're not safe to be alone with. The second fear is, the, is that we actually will encounter God in the silence, and as we mentioned earlier, we're not sure God can be trusted. We're not sure God actually does have our best interests at heart. We're not sure God is safe. As C.S. Lewis puts it in the Chronicles of Narnia, he's not a tame lion. If the living God were but a fraction of what we imagine God to be, an unmediated encounter could be our undoing. So, like the Israelites at Mount Sinai, we opt for a safe, for a domestic religion, mediated for us by those able and willing to encounter God face to face. We'll hear about God. We'll sing about God. We'll talk. We'll debate. We'll theorize about God. But the unmediated presence? No. The silence is not a safe place at all because God is not safe to be alone with. The third fear is that there may well be nothing in the silence but silence. We may not encounter God, or if we did, God would have nothing to say to us. If we entered the silence, what would it do if we encountered all we encountered was the silence or even the absence of God? What would that do to our faith, to our trust? Would our faith in a silent God be diminished or even disappear altogether? There's a story about Mother Teresa that on the surface is quite heartwarming. One day a person who noticed her diligence in prayer asked her what she said in all that time spent in prayer. And Mother Teresa responded, well, I, I don't actually say much. I mostly listen. The person responded with the obvious question, follow-up question, well, what does God say to you then? To which Mother Teresa responded, God doesn't say much either. But there is a darker side to that story. 
Her journals revealed an, revealed an unexpected and very unsettling theme in her spiritual life. You see, as a young woman, she'd had an epiphany, a moment of revelation, a, a profound experience with God that set the trajectory for her life and her ministry that led her to serve the poorest of the poor in the slums of Calcutta. However, for the rest of her long life of service, she never again experienced the manifest presence of God or had any sense of God's approval. She struggled mightily with that. I know I would. And at times she was convinced she was rejected and abandoned by God, and she was often on the brink of absolute despair. Yet she never gave up on her calling and ministry. She remained faithful in the face of the inexplicable, seemingly sadistic silence of God. No, the silence is not a safe place at all because there may be nothing but silence there. And what shall I say in response to these fears? They are, after all, legitimate fears, and I certainly share them. For that, I must turn to wiser words than my own, and with this I will close. In 1 John 4, verse 18, we're told, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. John follows in the next verse with the simple yet critically important sentence. We love because he first loved us. You see, often it's not that we love our diversions, distractions, and frenetic lifestyle too much. It's that we love God too little. Now, we won't love God more by telling ourselves what terrible Christians we are or by sheer force of will. And this is where that last verse from 1 John is so important. We will only love God more as we are able to appropriate and acknowledge God's love more fully into our being. So, if we didn't flee into the silence and stillness the first chance we got when the pandemic began, one of the primary reasons why may very well be that we didn't know ourselves to be the beloved of God. You didn't know how loved you were. A number of years ago, near the beginning of my time of ministry here, I couldn't sleep one night and I was praying for a person for whom I was providing care. Suddenly, I was given a glimpse into God's love for that person. It was like a column of powerful, smoky white light that shone down on me, that poured down on me. It was like a, a focused beam of, of uh, one of those um, floodlights, those big floodlights that sort of flash across the sky, that focused beam, and it was shining right down on me. But it had weight to it. If I'd been standing, it would have driven me to my knees. I understood immediately that were this person able to accept and appropriate a love like that, it would fill up and satisfy all of his inner wounded and lovelorn places. Over time, as I pondered the significance of that vision of that encounter, that moment, I found it quite easy to understand that God loved everyone else for whom I provided care, whom God had entrusted to my care in the very same way. And there have been times when I've experienced that viscerally as well, that powerful, powerful love. But, and here's the point of my story, never once 
At that moment or in my subsequent pondering, did it ever cross my mind that God loved me that way? Not once. And it took another few years and some wise and loving care from someone else for the light of God's love for me to begin to sneak through the cracks and into my inner being. Our defenses against a love like that are woven together out of a conviction of our own fundamental unworthiness and unlovableness. I just coined a new word. However, that is the whole point of God's long narrative of God's loving and redemptive dealings with humanity. We are not worthy. The love is unearned. And it's there anyway. The most important, perhaps the most readily accessible manifestation of that love is to be found in the life and especially the death of Jesus. If you seriously want to begin to get a glimpse of God's unfailing love for you personally, start by reflecting on the type of love that impelled Jesus past all the temptations to deviate through the crucible of Gethsemane and onto the cross. That's the kind of love we're talking about. That is what you are worth to God. And that is the love we will encounter in the silent stillness. Be still and know that he is God. Listen for that silent whisper, for it is the voice of love. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.